Micah 2, 1 through 5 is our passage. I've entitled this, Woe to the Greedy. In Genesis 2, Adam and Eve were given a very specific command. You're allowed to eat from any tree in the garden except that one right there. Don't eat from that one. It was a command given to them directly by God. There was no question about what the command was. And they were told, if you eat from that particular tree, what's going to happen to you? You shall surely die. No question about it. You will die. And yet, Genesis 3, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and she ate. Notice she saw the tree and she assessed the tree as being desirable. Something worthy of having, something she wanted. It attracted her desire. And because she desired it so much, she was willing to disobey God refused to obey his command, and she was willing to eat from the tree. This same word that's used here as as desirable is used again in Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Here that word is translated as covet. You are forbidden to covet, to desire what God has not given you or what God has forbidden to you. It's used again in Deuteronomy 7, verse 25. The graven images of their gods you are to burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold. It's not enough just for you to get rid of the idol, the physical idol. You have to ensure that your heart does not go after the silver and the gold that covers that idol. Over and over again, the Old Testament forbids coveting. It forbids greed. Desiring what God did not give to you or desiring what God has forbidden to you. Some of the most infamous sins of the Bible are the result of coveting. Of desiring something that God did not give. Remember when Jericho fell? And God said, all the treasure inside of Jericho is mine. Do not touch it. And there was one guy who said, you know what, I really, I really like what's in the city. His name was Achan. Joshua 7, verse 21, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. What led Achan to sin and violate God's law? What led him to do something that would get him, his family, his children, and all of his livestock stoned? He coveted. He desired something that God had expressly forbidden to him. Romans 7, Paul says that he learned that coveting was sin. He learned that from the law. The law forbid coveting. Ephesians 5, verse 5, he calls coveting idolatry. He says the covetous man is an idolater. Paul in Philippians said the false teachers, he said of false teachers, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. That first phrase there, their God is their appetite. 
is to say that they are so greedy that their desires have become their gods. They are their functional gods. Greed takes your attention and your focus off of God and it places it upon you and your desires and what you want. And when we do that, we make our desires into functional gods. They are gods that issue commands and those commands must be obeyed. And if they're not obeyed, if we don't get what we want, we use those desires as justification to go sin. Achan didn't get what he wanted and that justified him sinning. Eve didn't get what she wanted, so she justified sinning and violating God's law. Jesus told his disciples, beware and be on guard on your guard against every form of greed. Greed isn't just wanting more money. You can be greedy for wealth. You can be greedy for fame. You can be greedy for sex, for people's approval. You can be greedy for anything. You can covet anything. Any desire that you are willing to sin for if you, don't, if you want it, and you're sin, willing to sin when you are denied it. Any desire can be a form of greed. And greed is dangerous because it leads you to other sins. It leads to other sins. In Colossians 3, 5, he says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. What you need to understand here is he's kind of working his way in. And if you start at the end of the verse, everything leads to what's ahead of it. Greed leads to evil desire. Evil desires lead to passions. Passions are inflamed desires. Passions lead to impurity. Impurity leads to sexual immorality. At the root of all of it is greed. Greed leads to other sins. James 4, 1 and 2 says, Greed is the cause of anger, conflict, and murder. Wanting something that God has not given you. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Anybody remember what his answer was? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the greatest commandment. And greed violates both of those commands. Coveting or greed is described as cursing God. In Psalm 10, he says, For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. Jesus said, You cannot serve God and serve me. You can't pursue after both. For you will either love the one and hate the other. The greedy person is engaged in spurning God. He's engaged in worshiping a false God. Not only that, but he cannot love his neighbor. Because he can't love his desires and his neighbor at the same time. Romans 13, verse 9. Paul, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice, you can do one thing at a time. You cannot murder and love your neighbor at the same time. You cannot covet and love your neighbor at the same time. To covet is to hate your neighbor. To murder is to hate your neighbor. And in our passage this morning in Micah 2, greed is at the center of attention. Greed is the underlying problem. Gary Smith, 
So one of the central theological themes in this section is the disastrous consequences of coveting things that belong to somebody else. The underlying sin in this passage is the sin of greed. And I want to show you three features of greed. Three features of greed in this passage. The first one, it's the sign of greed. Put it another way, it's the evidence of a greedy person. Verse 1 gives one of the many indicators that a person has become over, has been overcome by their desires. If you notice Micah 2, verse 1, he begins his verse, he says, Woe. We'll stop there for a second. Woe is an is a interjection. Uh, Dr. Street used to say in counseling, the most powerful word in counseling is, Whoa, 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 whoa. It's meant to get you to stop. It's meant to get your attention. And here Micah uses woe to get your attention. And what usually follows a woe, 40 times in the Old Testament, what follows a woe is a warning or a threat that God is coming to judge. And that's what Micah is using it here for. He's using it to express a warning of coming judgment. He says, woe to those who scheme iniquity. Iniquity here can be used in a couple of ways. It refers to a disaster or a looming disaster. And here, the looming disaster is brought about by the men of Judah. And it's brought about against their fellow countrymen. It's the harm they're planning to bring on their neighbors, their family, and their friends. Translated differently, woe to those who scheme sin, or woe to those who scheme injustice. Now, it's important to note here, he didn't say woe to those who do injustice. The woe is pronounced on people who are merely scheming injustice, planning it. They're actually not doing anything in verse 1. Everything in verse 1 is what's going on in their head. And the verb here, to scheme, refers to mental activity of thinking through a plan, pondering how they can pull off accomplishing their desires. How can I get what I want? How can I bring about this sin so that I can satisfy my desires? This is the internal activity of greed. Thinking and scheming and planning how to accomplish what I desire. This happened in the Old Testament, happened in the, what they called the heart. The heart was the center of thinking, willing, and emotions. You made plans in your heart. Yahweh, speaking uh, Ezekiel 38, said, Thus says the Lord God, it will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind, and you will devise an evil plan. This is just sitting there thinking on, planning to do evil. Thinking of ways that you can hurt somebody else. Verse 1 again. Speaking of these same individuals who work out evil on their beds. Now think about that for a moment. When you should be sleeping. When they should have been sleeping. Instead they lie awake at night. Pondering, planning, scheming how they can bring about some evil or disaster on their neighbor. 
and they want to bring about disaster on their neighbor so they can get something for themselves. And it's not just their neighbors. They're scheming on how they can take advantage and rob their family, their friends. In Micah 7, he actually says, do not trust your friends, do not trust your neighbors. Mother will be against daughter, father will be against son. They're scheming and planning iniquity for the people in their own life. The people they say they love. It's all going on in the mind. It's all going on in the heart. This is where all sin begins. It begins in the heart. It begins with a plan. It begins with just one little thought. You know, it's like the old, ooh, shiny object, right? You see the shiny object, and you're like, I really want that. And the more you think about it, the more that desire grows. And the more it grows, the more powerful it becomes. And the more and more you want it. And generally, if you're a professing Christian, you'll realize, hey, what I want is sinful. And so you'll start thinking of ways of how can I get what I want without crossing the line into sin? How can I get as close to what I want and satisfy my desire without sinning? And you start making plans on how to do that. Paul had something to say about that, Romans 13. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. The phrase there, make no provision, literally says make no plan. Don't scheme how to plan out and get what you want. Don't scheme ways of committing things that you know God hates and trying to do it without crossing the line. But if you keep dwelling on it, if you keep focusing on it, it will just take more and more control. And eventually, it will come out in behavior. It'll go from what you're thinking to what you're doing. And that's exactly what happens here with these men of Judah. They were unrestrained in their pursuit of their desires. There was nothing stopping them. They laid in bed at night, and they just planned and schemed and schemed and schemed. Verse 1 again. When morning comes, they do it. Anyone notice something here is inverted? These guys, I'll tell you what they were planning to do. They were planning to steal and rob their neighbors. And they do their planning at night so they can go do their robbery and stealing in broad daylight. You know, most people would say, I'm going to go do my stealing at night where nobody can see me, where I can hide in the shadows. These guys are brazen criminals. I'm going to go steal when you can see me. I don't even care if you know who I am. No shame, no sorrow, no regret. The greedy person is never ashamed of pursuing their own desires. They're never ashamed of what it takes to get what they want. And you might ask them, well, how could you do such a thing? How could you sit there and plan to hurt people you say that you love? How, how is that possible? And if you were to ask them, do you want to know what their answer would be? Into verse 1. For it is in the power of their hands. You want to know what that answer means? You go to the person and say, why are you stealing from your neighbor? Because I can. 
Why are you oppressing your own family? Because I can. Why are you offending Yahweh, your creator? Because I can. Why are you robbing the poor? Because they have something that I want. And they can't stop me from taking it from them. And therefore, because I want it and I have the power to take it, I'm going to take it. Yes. Yes. Yes, and that's actually, we're going to get there. That's actually who he's referring to here. He's referring to wealthy, you might say wealthy businessmen, land barons, priests, leaders in the nation. A greedy heart doesn't care about anyone else. It cares about getting what it wants. It focuses only on the pursuit of its own desires. And everyone else, well, you're just collateral damage, I guess. It reminds me of the false teachers that Peter spoke about. 2 Peter 2, verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. The false teachers used Scripture and they twisted Scripture so they can take advantage of people and steal from them. These men here aren't using Scripture. But it just shows that greed knows no restraint. It knows no bounds. They'll do anything to get what they want. And if you find that appalling, and there should be a certain element that you do find that appalling, that people do that, if we're honest, we all do the same thing. You know, like, when you went and did something you knew was wrong before you did it? You knew it was a sin? You knew it was going to hurt someone. You knew that God hated what you were about to do, and yet there you went. And you did it anyway. Why? Because you wanted something. You were greedy. You wanted something that God had not given you. You didn't care that God didn't want it. You didn't care that it would offend God, and neither did I. That's why we sin. This is greed. The sign of greed is a heart that's dominated by its own desires. A heart that pursues its own desires. And it is willing to sin and hurt anyone to get what it wants. You might say that greed is very pragmatic. The ends always justify the means. The end of obtaining my desire justifies the sin, it justifies hurting you, it justifies offending God. It's very pragmatic. And the men of Judah here were certainly greedy men. In fact, Micah is going to illustrate later in the book how greedy they were. In Micah chapter 3, he does it in really graphic terms. Micah 3.1 And I said, here now, heads of Jacob, these were rulers, leaders, and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You guys are leaders. You guys are rulers. You should know what the right thing to do is. Verse 2. You who hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones. Kind of graphic, isn't it? Verse 3. Who eat the flesh of my people, strip off their skin from them, break their bones, and chop them up as, as for the pot and as meat in the kettle. In the pursuit of your desires, you turn everybody around you into a piece of chicken. 
and you're willing to rip them apart and eat them just so you can have what you want. That's pretty depraved. And that brings us to our second feature of greed. The strength of greed. Greed will take you a lot further than you think it will. The strength of greed refers to the power that greed has to pull you down into sin. Look at verse 2. They covet fields and then seize them. Micah here clearly identifies our sin. It's a heart sin, that of coveting. They fix their desires on one thing. People's fields, pasture lands. And they devised plans and they schemed on how they could go and rob other people of their pastures. And get the land for themselves. And once they had their plan, he says they went out and he seized them. They went out and grabbed and took those lands. You can translate this verb to seize as to tear away or to rob. The same verb is used in Leviticus 19.13. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. This isn't just legal trickery that they're using. The verb here has a certain level of physical violence attached to it. One lexicon said of this verb, it has in its meaning the violence that goes beyond mere stealing or taking another's belongings, but includes robbing by force. A good example of this is in Judges 9. Judges 9, verse 25, he uses this term to refer to highway robbery. The men of Shechem set an ambush against him on the tops of the mountains, and they robbed all who passed by. They go over there and physically rob them and steal from them. These men here in Micah 2 set their hearts on other people's pasture lands. And they devise a plan, and then they go over there, and they violently rob them of their own lands. Now keep in mind, this was an agrarian society. Pasture lands were kind of important. To steal someone's pasture lands was to steal their livelihood. It was to take the primary means that they had for providing food for their family. Bruce Waltke. In that agrarian economy, a person's life depended on his fields. If a person lost his fields, at best, he might become a day laborer. At worst, he might become a slave. In either case, he lost his independence, his freedom before God, and became a dependent of the land barons. When they would come in and steal your land and steal your only source of income, you are now dependent upon them to provide for you. Or you have to go work your lands for them, and you become their slave. These were likely very wealthy, very powerful men in the land. And they had influence and power enough that they could steal from people, and it would be under the guise of legal They would use legal trickery to rob people. Dale Ralph Davis, one can imagine these people turning up with the eviction papers that had the stamp of the local governing authority on them. Their actions were heartless but legal. 
it wasn't just the fields that they were after. They didn't want to rob these, the people of just their fields and just their livelihood. That wasn't enough. Greed pulled them much further than that. Verse 2 again. They come at fields and seize them and houses and take them away. That opening phrase, and houses and missing the verb, that's because the verb is implied from the first line. They covet is implied in the second line. They covet houses and take them away. They wanted your source of income, they wanted your food supply, and they wanted your house. It wasn't enough to make you penniless. They had to make you homeless as well. They knew it would make people homeless. They didn't care. They got what they wanted. They didn't care who it was that they evicted either. Micah 2.8, the women of my people you evict, each one from her pleasant house. From her children you take my splendor forever. They kick out women and children out of their homes. Isaiah spoke of these guys. In Isaiah 5, verse 8, he says, Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room, so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. Think of it this way. Most of us live in a neighborhood. If I was the land baron, I would come into your neighborhood and I would rob you of your house. And then I would go to all of your neighbors and I would rob them of all of their houses too. And then I would move into one of them. I have no more neighbors now. All my neighbors are gone. I, I kicked them all out. Every legal trick, every tactic they could think of, they would use to take your lands and to take your home. If you were a widow, let me give you an example of how this may have happened. If you were a widow and your husband had passed away and left you a, a house and a little plot of land and a few sons to work the land. If I was one of the rich land barons, what I would do is I would go to the local authorities and pay them and try to convince them that your deceased husband owes me a debt. And now I can take out a lien on your home and on your land. And with a little bit of influence, a little bit of money, I can get them to foreclose on your land and turn it over to me. And it all have the cover of being legal, but it was absolute robbery. They used legal tricks backed up by the threat of violence. Leaving the people homeless and penniless. Verse 2, again, they rob a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. I like the way Dale Roth Davis translates this. He says they put the squeeze on a man and his household. They squeeze everything out of him. The term here for rob can be translated as oppress. And it focuses more not on the, the stealing aspect, but it focuses more on the oppression on the use of power to abuse and to trample people down who are lower than you or who are weaker than you. These men, who are already rich and powerful, use their position and their power to oppress, to rob the weak and their own neighbors. 
There's a really excellent illustration of this kind of greed in the Bible. It's a really good illustration. Anybody remember King Ahab? A couple of you do. There's a story, parts of the story kind of make me laugh because Ahab is presented in a kind of funny way, but you remember Ahab was going around town and he looks over and he sees the vineyard that belongs to Naboth. And he's like, man, that's a beautiful little vineyard he's got. And he goes to Naboth and says, hey, Naboth, I want to buy your vineyard. And Naboth said, sorry, I'm not selling my vineyard. You can't have my vineyard, king. And Ahab does the manly thing. He goes home sulking and pouting. 1 Kings 21, verse 4. So Ahab came into his house sullen and vexed because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay on his bed and turned his face and ate no food. I'm pretty sure this is what I did when I was six. You get upset, you go lay on your bed, and you just stare at the wall and you don't talk to anybody. Well, then his wife comes home, verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, How is it that your spirit is so sullen that you are not eating food? Verse 6, So he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. He didn't get what he wanted. And now he's pouting and sulking and he's upset. Jezebel's probably there trying to soothe him. Verse 7. Jezebel, do you now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Don't worry about it. If he doesn't want to sell it, we'll figure out another way. We'll scheme another way to get you that vineyard. And so she does. And her plot includes making a false accusation against him. And then having him executed. Because her husband and she is greedy. Ahab had a greedy heart. When he didn't get what he wanted, he went over and pouted and sulked and was upset. And then he and his wife schemed on how they could murder somebody so that he could get the vineyard. Verse 16 When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. He finds out Naboth is dead. He's like, oh, whoopee, I got my vineyard. And he just walks down there and now it's mine. Naboth had no ability to fight this. There's nothing he can do to stop this. This was the king. You know, we we go and read 2 Samuel, we read of David coveting Bathsheba and killing someone for it, Ahab did the same crime, only it was just a plot of dirt that he killed him for. But I do want you to notice what Naboth said when Ahab asked to buy his vineyard. Because he said something interesting, and it's relevant to Micah too. But Naboth said to Ahab, this is 1 Kings 21.3, but Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid me, that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. What inheritance is he referring to? This same phrase is used in Micah 2.2. They rob a man of his house and a man his inheritance. 
what inheritance is this? The term here refers to inalienable and hereditary property. Whatever property was a part of this inheritance was yours permanently. It was to remain in the family permanently. One lexicon said, that which is one's by virtue of ancient right and that which is one's permanently. Here's the idea. God created all of the earth. Which means God owns all the land in the world. He then created all the people of the world. And out of that people, all of the people of the world, he chose a specific nation and he gave to them an inheritance. He gave to them a plot of land. It was his gift to them. It was their inheritance from Yahweh. And when Israel entered into the land, when they went into the promised land, what was the first thing after they got some of the inhabitants out, what was the first thing they started doing? Divvying up the land. This land goes to this tribe, this land goes to this tribe, and each family was assigned a plot of land. And whatever your tribe and your family received, that was your land. And it was your land that was given to you by Yahweh. It was your inheritance from Yahweh. And it was supposed to be yours permanently. Nobody was allowed to take it from you. And if for some reason you became poor and financially strapped and you had to sell the land to make ends meet, the law actually had provisions in it for you to get the land back. This is a really long quote, and I'm sorry, but I'm probably not going to read all of it. Leviticus 25, 23-7 describes this. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. Notice that you cannot sell it permanently because it belongs to Yahweh. Thus, for every piece of your property, you are to provide for the redemption of the land. If someone sells it, you're to provide a way for them to get their land back. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor, he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back whatever his relative sold. I'm not going to read the rest of it. It's a really long quote. The point here is, once God has given them the land, it's theirs. Permanently. It belongs to them. Walter Kaiser, a parcel of land could never be out of the hands of a family for a period longer than seven years. It reverted back to its original owners every seven years in the sabbatical cycle. The law made provision for this. And here in Micah 2, these greedy land barons were not only oppressing the poor. Their greed took them to not only oppress the poor, they were robbing people of the inheritance that Yahweh had given. And they were taking from them Yahweh's gift. Do you see how far greed has taken these guys? They were actually stealing from God. Yeah, they were stealing from God. This was the gift God had given. And as you might imagine... Yahweh was not pleased. Because in their greed, they had exploited and hurt poor, helpless people. In human terms, you might say God has a special place in his heart for the oppressed and the poor. Just a couple of verses here. Psalm 9, verse 9, The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed and a stronghold in times of trouble. 
Psalm 103, the Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. Last one, he who oppresses the poor taunts his maker. But he who is gracious to the needy honors him. That last one should scare the daylights out of these guys. By oppressing the poor, by stealing from them, you are taunting your maker. And they incurred the ire and the disdain of Yahweh. And now the just and holy God is going to pronounce his sentence. And that's the third feature of greed. The sentence of greed. The just penalty that's coming. Greed is going to bring about God's judgment. Verse 3. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am planning against this family a calamity. Now last week we were looking at Chapter 1, and we saw all these puns and word plays that Micah put in there. Back in verse 1, very first two lines, what were these men doing? Huh? They were planning. They were scheming. And they were scheming evil. Second line of verse 1 says they were scheming evil. And now here, Yahweh responds to them. And says, you're scheming? So am I. I'm scheming too. And I'm scheming to bring calamity on you. I'm planning to bring this calamity upon you. Calamity here can be translated as evil. It was, back, it was used back in verse 1, work out evil on their beds. It's not saying that God is planning to sin. It's just saying that he's planning to bring some form of harmful disaster upon them. God is going to give back to them exactly what they gave to other people. And he's going to treat them the way they have been treating others. Notice he refers to them as this family. That likely indicates that God has a specific group of leaders in Israel that are involved in this. The word family here could refer to a clan or a group. They don't necessarily have to be relatives. There's a specific group of leaders of rich, powerful men who are involved in these schemes and who are doing this. And God's calamity um, is going to be inescapable. They're not going to be able to avoid it, and once it comes, they're not going to be able to get out of it. Notice verse 3 again. From which you cannot remove from your necks. These guys were very proud. They likely had very nice clothing. They wanted people to know how wealthy they were. They probably had very nice jewelry. And Yahweh pictures them here not as wealthy, upper class, powerful men. He pictures them as beasts of burden. He makes them into oxen. And he says, you're not going to be able to remove it from your neck. That phrase there, remove it from your neck, refers to a yoke that you would put on an animal to bind him. Like an ox. And once he puts the yoke on them, they're not going to be able to take it off. That yoke will be there permanently, and that yoke is the calamity that God is going to bring about them, bring about upon them. 
No more fancy clothes. No more fine jewelry. No more parading around pompously. The freedom they robbed from others, God's going to rob them of. The wealth they robbed from the poor, Yahweh's going to take it away from them. The riches and the splendor they spent endless nights scheming and planning to get, it's all going to vanish. They're going to lose every bit of it. An invading army is going to arrive. They're going to destroy the country. They're going to steal all the wealth. They're going to take all the land. And they're going to haul these rich guys, well, former rich guys, off in chains and shackles. And they're going to put a yoke on their neck and turn them into slaves. The very thing these guys have been doing to the poor people of Judah. This is that principle of an eye for an eye. You're going to get exactly what you dished out. Verse 3, he's, he's not done. And you will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. Just a very wooden translation. You will not walk with your head held up high. God's not just interested in giving you back what you deserve. He's interested in humiliating you. Of robbing you of your pride. Bruce Waltke, as a master irresistibly enslaves and humbles an animal by a yoke, so Israel's new masters will enslave and humble them, and they shall not escape. Subjugation for this clan came from the hand of the cracked troops of the Assyrians, who, like the venal land barons, coveted their lands and so plundered them. We saw last week in Isaiah 10 that the Assyrians were the instrument God used to judge the nation. But in Isaiah 10, it says he does not so intend. He intends only to plunder and to gain wealth and power. The very greed that led these men in Judah to be so cruel is the very same greed that motivates and empowers the Assyrian army as they come in and take over. And if having their property stolen and being led away as captives and slaves wasn't humiliating enough, Verse 4 again. On that day they will take up a, against you a taunt and utter a bitter lamentation. There's some debate here on what this means. The word taunt can be translated as a proverb. And so some people take taunt or proverb and they mix that with the second line there and utter a bitter lamentation. And they say this is just a lamentation of these rich barons as they're being taken out of the land. And they are lamenting what's happened to them. I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think that because God is speaking to the Judeans. And he says to the Judeans, they will say this. They will utter this lament. He tells them in the beginning of verse 4, and they will take up against you a taunt. You here is the men of Judah. They would have to be the Assyrians. So this proverb is not what the Judeans are saying as they're being led away captive. This is what their captors are saying. This is a lament that's intended to mock and to make fun of their new captives. This same term for taunt can be understood as a song of mocking. It's used in Deuteronomy 28, verse 37. You shall become a horror, a proverb, and a taunt among all the people where the Lord drives you. 
Yahweh told them, when you go into exile, your enemies are going to taunt you and make fun of you for it. And here he tells them again. How did the Assyrians mock them? Verse 4 again. We are completely destroyed. He exchanges the portion of my people, how he removes it from me, to the apostate he apportions our fields. Again, this is the Assyrians speaking. And they're pretending to be the Judeans. And they're mocking what apparently the Judeans were saying at the time. Gary Smith provides a modern rendition of this taunt. Isn't it too bad? It's so unfortunate what these rich people had to go through. What they coveted and stole is now being coveted and taken from them. They're going to end up with nothing. Doesn't it just break your heart to see them get what they deserve? That's a modern rendition of their taunt. Can you tell that God really does not like greedy people? He's really not happy when you are so greedy that you would be willing to be unloving to your neighbor, you'd be unloving to him. And I also want you to note, in all of this passage, he has not once mentioned the Assyrians. He has not once mentioned who these captors are, who they, who's going to bring about this judgment. Micah leaves them out. And he leaves them out so that your focus is solely on Yahweh. On the judge who's going to bring judgment. And that you can focus solely on the reason that judgment is coming. And so Micah gives this message here for two reasons. One, in the hope that these greedy men would repent. That they would stop what they're doing. But there's another reason. It's a warning to everyone else. Don't be greedy. Don't follow the same sinful, greedy practices of the men of Judah. Bruce Waltke. The Assyrians, however, are not mentioned because the sentence against criminals focuses on the judge himself and serves as a paradigmatic warning against all greedy folk living in the earthly city. Their destiny, too, is an irresistible gathering and enduring bondage. These guys are just a picture of what's going to happen to every person in Judah who is greedy and sinful. And God preserved this message here in Scripture so that you and I would learn the same lesson. When Paul was talking about the children of Israel coming out of Egypt in the Exodus, and they go through all this judgment 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, Now these things, speaking of the judgment, happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. The craving there refers to greedy desires. God let you see and inscripturated those events so that you would learn the lesson. When you find greed in your heart, that you find that you have things that you want so badly that you're willing to sin for them, Repent quickly. Turn away from it. Expel every trace of covetousness that you find. And be ruthless about it. But God's not finished yet. He's only given half the sentence. What's the other half? They've been robbed. They've been enslaved. They've been exiled. What's left in the sentence? Verse 5. 
Therefore, you're, therefore, you will have no one stretching a measuring line for you by lot in the assembly of the Lord. A measuring line is a rope or cord. It was used to measure objects. It was also used to measure distances. You could use a measuring line to measure a plot of land. In Psalm 78, the same idea is expressed. Psalm 78, verse 55 He also drove out the nations before them and apportioned them for an inheritance by measurement and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents, referring to when they were going into the land. A measuring line was used to apportion the land out to the people. And here in Micah, he doesn't refer to what happened in the Exodus. He refers to a future restoration. When Israel will be restored to their land, And in that restoration, these unscrupulous men will have no one to measure out land to them. They will have no inheritance in that future restoration. They are going to be cut off from the inheritance and the assembly of the Lord. Their descendants would either remain in exile or their descendants would all die off. And they will not be there during the restoration. The land that they had stolen from other people will return to its rightful owner. The lands they would have inherited will now be apportioned out to somebody else. Justice will be served. But this also implies that at some point, Israel is going to be restored to their land. Remember, the land is a permanent inheritance. Once given, it's theirs forever. So we have to ask the question, when is this restoration going to occur? Because some say, well, it's already restored. Israel's in the land right now. Therefore, this has no relevance today or any time in the future. Well, I don't think that works. Later in Micah, he actually talks about the restoration in several places. We'll get there, but I'm just going to give you one verse. Micah 7, 11. It will be a day for, your building, for building your walls. On that day, your boundary will be extended. In that day, you will come back into the land. You will rebuild all of the cities. You will rebuild the land completely. And your boundaries will be extended. The borders of your nation will go out. This is something that has not happened in history. Anybody remember the land that was promised to Israel? Genesis 15, 18. On that day, the Lord God made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Remember that? Now, it's assumed that the river of Egypt here is the Nile. It's the most well-known river in Egypt. And their land goes from the Nile all the way up to the Euphrates. Has that ever happened in Israel's history? I don't know if you can see that way back there. Can you see that? This is the land under Judah, uh, excuse me, under the judges. If you can see it, what's in yellow is the land inhabited by Israel during the time of the judges. Is that going from the Nile to the Euphrates? The Nile is further south. And the Euphrates is much further north. 
the land promised in Genesis? That's not all of it. Here's the land under Solomon, under the United Kingdom, everything that's in blue. To my knowledge, that is the furthest the borders of Israel ever went. And you see there on the northern end, it actually reaches the Euphrates, but it does not reach the Nile. Here's the land that was promised to them. Everything that's in green. Have they come anywhere close to getting all the land that was promised to them? In chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he promises them again, I'm going to bring you back into the land. Well, then there's other, another view that says, well, no, 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 you don't understand. You see, the, the Jews rejected their Messiah. And they would say that the promises of judgment have been fulfilled, and they've been fulfilled literally. But the promises of restoration, the promises of blessing for Israel, those will not be fulfilled literally. They will be fulfilled spiritually, but they will not be fulfilled spiritually for Israel. They'll be fulfilled spiritually for the church. And they changed the name of the church, or they changed Israel into the church. As Walter Kaiser says, that is eisegesis. Because it's not in the Old Testament. And it's certainly not in the book of Micah. You cannot draw that conclusion looking at the Old Testament. The promises of judgment and restoration in the book of Micah are placed side by side. Nothing in the text says that God will not fulfill his promises of restoration. In fact, the text says the exact opposite. Because it is Yahweh who promises it, and he gave the land to them already, and it is a permanent inheritance. Nothing in the New Testament says that God will not fulfill this promise to restore Israel to the land. The New Testament says God is faithful to the promises he makes, and it's that faithfulness that we trust in. And third, the fulfillment of the land promises is part of the Abrahamic covenant. It was part of the promise made to Abram. Genesis 12, now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And even in Genesis, it says it is a permanent inheritance. It is never going to be permanently taken away from Israel. Genesis 17. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Land barons are not going to stop the promise of God. The people that God gave the land to will receive the land God promised, and they will have that inheritance forever. Okay. We've got about two minutes. Any, uh, any questions? Comments? All right, let me close this in prayer. We'll be done. Father, we thank you so much for your grace, for your mercy. We thank you for the promises that you have made. Uh, we thank you that those promises are faithful, that they are true, that you are faithful to the promises that you have made and that you will keep those promises. And we ask that you would help us uh, to live holy lives, to not... Be greedy to be content with what you have given us. And we ask that you would help us this morning as we worship. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.